Welcome to the AMSSM podcast on gluten. This is Dr. Chris Bigazinski, your host. With me today are Alessio Fasano, the W. Allen Walker Chair in Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition, as well as the Division Chief of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition at Massachusetts General Hospital, as well as Dana Liss, Ph.D., a registered dietitian and researcher whose work has recently focused on reduced FODMAP and gluten-free diets for athletes. You can learn more about Dana and some of her work at www.summitsportnutrition.com. The other day, I was at a rock climbing gym, and as I pulled up uh, into the parking lot, I saw one of my favorite bumper stickers of the year, which was, I heart gluten. So I think we've probably reached peak peak gluten at this point. So uh, to start us off, Dana Liss, can you tell us what is gluten and what is our understanding of what it does in the body? Gluten is a natural occurring, basically, protein, and it's in a lot of our sort of wheat-based products, or it's added into some products for texture, uh, for, t- for its texture properties. So you would obviously find gluten in breads, um, a lot of wheat-based products, and then it's in the things like um, soy sauce, for example. So that's where you could find it in the diet. In terms of the diagnostic end, I'll actually turn that over to Dr. Pisano because that's more of his area of expertise. So, um, as Dana was mentioned, gluten is a protein, actually technically a mixture of proteins uh, made by subgroups that are called glutenins and glidins. Um, they are very abundant. It's the most abundant you know, component in many grains, and they have peculiarities. Um, the most important is it cannot be completely digested. Um, by our, you know, digestive enzymes. So if you compare proteins to a sort of pearl necklace, um, you know, when we have to make use of these proteins, we have to break this necklace first in pieces that we call peptides and then peel these pearls one at a time that we call amino acids in order to be absorbed and make use of it. We can't do this with gluten uh, completely because human um, don't have the enzymes to do that. So... Um, if they come undigested in our body, there are possible consequences. The vast majority of us actually would not really perceive even the presence of these quote-unquote potential enemies and would do fine. But there are a group of individuals that eventually, when exposed to these undigested fragments, may eventually mount a, an immune response that can translate in sinus symptoms that can pretty much uh, you know, occur in any part of uh, the body. And um, that can have, you know, clinical consequences uh, that can go from, uh, you know, mild GI symptoms like uh, stomach ache, uh, irregular bowel movements, you know, bloating all the way to more severe issues and pertinent discussion, you know, for example, chronic fatigue and uh, decreased performance. Thank you. Uh, Dana Liss, how is gluten related to carbohydrates on a uh, macronutrient level? Well, gluten is, um, in terms of athletes in the population that I work with, a lot of athletes do have a high-carbohydrate diet or a periodized high-carbohydrate diet, and a lot of the carbohydrates that they eat are wheat-based products, um, cereals, breads, pastas, which are obviously high in gluten. Recently, uh, there's been uh, a little bit of a sea change as far as gluten, and there may be... Uh, something else at play. Uh, Folks in our audience may have heard of FODMAPs. Dana, can you give us uh, the relationship of FODMAPs and how that fits into this picture? 
Yeah, with athletes, when we're, um, I mean, when I work primarily with endurance athletes and sort of gluten and gluten-free diets have have grown in popularity over the last few years um, quite exponentially. And a lot of endurance athletes, um, even some, some research has shown up to 90% of endurance athletes experience gastrointestinal symptoms, either during exercise or after exercise. And it's become popular that these GI symptoms have become attributed to gluten. So a lot of athletes have um, gone gluten-free, cut gluten, gluten out of their diet and reported, you know, they feel better, they have less GI symptoms, etc. But whether or not gluten itself is a modulating factor is, is still, um, we're still very curious because when you go gluten-free, what happens a lot of the time is you actually automatically reduce certain foods that are high in FODMAP. Uh, for example, if you have um, a wheat-based pasta, for example, and you go to switch to a gluten-free product, maybe a quinoa or rice pasta, you're cutting out the gluten, but you're also cutting out fructans, which our body also doesn't necessarily have the enzymes to digest, especially in larger amounts. So it might actually be the automatic reduce, reduction in FODMAPs that are modulating the reduction in GI symptoms and not gluten itself. Before we go further, can you give us yeah, yeah, a, little, a little breakdown on yeah, what a little, FODMAPs are? What FODMAPs that are. Mean. Yep. So FODMAP stands for fermentogo-oligo-dimonosaccharides and polyols. And they're a group of short-chain carbohydrates that occur in foods naturally, but when we eat them, we don't actually digest them very well. So then they transit down to the colon where they're fermented by colonic bacteria causing gas and bloating. In populations with IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, those symptoms are actually quite exaggerated from um, possibly from visceral hypersensitivity. We don't actually know all the mechanisms. But in an athletic population, um, FODMAPs and the use of FODMAPs or possibly FODMAPs causing GI symptoms, it's a pretty new area. But in terms of an irritable bowel syndrome population, a low FODMAP diet has been quite successful in treating those gastrointestinal symptoms and reducing symptoms. Uh, Dr. Fasano, can you tell us a little bit about what conditions or symptoms gluten intolerance or celiac sprue can cause, specifically in the athletic population? Yeah, I mean, uh, until the recent past, we thought that uh, the only condition that gluten would trigger would be celiac disease. And that was, you know, once upon a time called celiac sprue. Um, now we know that we talk about the spectrum of gluten-related disorders. So besides celiac disease, these the autoimmune response to gluten, we have, you know, gluten sensitivity or non-celiac gluten sensitivity that is another form of gluten reaction, um, immune reaction to gluten, and then we have wheat allergy that is on an allergic base. The three forms cannot be distinguished in terms of sign of symptoms because they all, you know, cause the same kind of uh, symptoms, so they are not distinguishable just purely on the clinical ground. Um, of course, because the encounter between the enemy, I gluten, and the immune system occurs on a battlefield that's the gut. Most of these people that have problems with gluten experience GI symptoms, some that I was alluding to before. Um, so, uh, you know, irregular bowel movements, constipation or diarrhea, they can have weight loss. Uh, you can have um, bloating and, and gas. 
and uh, again, uh, particularly in uh, athletes, they overload with carbohydrates, as Dana was mentioned before. Therefore, they really have a, a diet enriching gluten, and they end up to have one of these issues um, related to uh, gluten reaction. They may experience these symptoms. Uh, they are, can be quite disturbing um, for for an athlete. However, beside the um, uh, you know, GI symptoms, uh, you know, these conditions can also cause extra manifestation. And pertinent to athletes, I believe that, you know, three of them needs to be mentioned. One is um, anemia, um, and with that, fatigue. So um, this condition can cause a reduction of hemoglobin and therefore the capability to transport the oxygen and then to have an aerobic, you know, kind of, um, you know, um, performance. Um, they can have joint pain um, because, you know, sometimes the inflammation may eventually involve joints and therefore this can definitely affect in a negative way athletic performance and plus but not least sometimes there are involvement of bones so people can experience osteopenia or osteoporosis and of course this increases the risk of fractures particularly for contact sports that can be important to keep in mind. Would it be useful or what's a reasonable model to think about this in the sense that would you say uh, gluten intolerance of some sort would be the overarching systemic issue and then maybe that's manifesting itself as what we used to think of as celiac sprue disease in the GI system or are these things more on some sort of a linear spectrum? How, what kind of model do you yeah, use? Yeah, it's this? more the latter actually. As a matter of fact, you know, we don't use the term intolerance. There is a lot of discussion about terminology, but anyhow, intolerance now are, you know, limited uh, food reactions. They are due to either because you ingest too much of that food stuff, like FODMAP, for example, um, and therefore you're not capable to handle them properly, and so you have left over the, the colon as Danaway is mentioning, or lactose intolerance. So in other words, a situation in which you lack the enzyme to completely digest, you know, this food stuff. We talk about sensitivity when there is an immune reaction, and particularly gluten, we talk now a spectrum of gluten-related disorders. So you can have an autoimmune process that is typical of a disease in which you destroy the intestine. As a consequence, you can develop both GI or extra GI symptoms. Uh, gluten sensitivity and and with allergy, so it's more on a continuum, so to speak. Dana Liss, I suspect that you see many patients that come to you with eating challenges. Certainly, endurance athletes, it can be very hard to fuel yourself for some of these longer endurance activities. And then on top of that, especially in runners, we know that running itself may cause some GI upset, just the mechanical forces of running. How do you differentiate or tease out somebody that's coming to you with, again, what we would call runner's runs or simple bloating versus maybe a true malabsorptive issue or something else going on? Yeah, I definitely um, don't uh, jump on any quick solution right away. I definitely, uh, you know, work with physician if needed, work with a gastroenterologist to actually determine if there is something going on. I'll obviously look for the the more common triggers um, and figure out details of when the GI issues are occurring, if it's certain more intensive training sessions that they're occurring rather than all the time, because we do know that strenuous training does cause reduced blood flow to the gut, causing GI injury um, and possibly more susceptibility to dietary triggers. We don't know that, but that was, you know, that's part of the reason why why I am very curious about gluten in athletes is um, athletes, especially endurance athletes, training 
at a high level are are causing gut injury on a regular basis in intervals more frequent than the gut cells have time to turn over and heal. So I would definitely start with looking at the common dietary triggers and information around when those triggers are starting, and then systematically work through a progression of common dietary triggers, including what Dr. Fasano mentioned, looking at lactose. That's quite common among a number of athletes, looking at a series of FODMAPs. And one thing to mention about FODMAPs is if you do have a FODMAP sensitivity, especially for athletes, you don't want to go on a strict long-term FODMAP diet. It's important to work with an experienced practitioner to figure out exactly what FODMAP groups or families or specific foods and in what quantities actually trigger symptoms. So there is a, there is a process for going through a FODMAP reintroduction period as well. Yeah, we'll get back to that in just a second as far as what a FODMAP uh, diet looks like. But uh, Alessio, in my own clinic, I have often seen patients that come to me with a diagnosis of celiac disease, and I ask them, what sort of workup have you had for this? And they say, oh, I never did any blood workup. I never had an endoscopy. Uh, I've never done any stool testing, uh, and yet they have this diagnosis of celiac disease. Can you guide us through uh, an evidence-based diagnostic approach for an athlete that you may suspect uh, has some sort of malabsorptive process or celiac disease? Well, because celiac disease is a, a lifelong you know, condition that will require this embracement of the gluten-free diet forever, you, know, you definitely want to have solid evidence before that eventually you label yourself as celiac. As a matter of fact, you know, the fact that you experience you know, sinus symptoms can be related to celiac disease because they are not that specific. You know, as Dana was alluding to, this can be due to many other things like FODMAP intolerance or lactose intolerance or even, you know, again, the strenuous activity, particularly endurance activities. We know that beside the injuries that Dana was alluding to, there is a clear increase in intestinal permeability, and we've seen this both in animal models and in athletes, um, you know, you want to be absolutely sure that your symptoms are related to probably gluten rather than any of the other conditions. And, and therefore, before to embrace any kind of treatment, including a dietary exclusion, it is important to really um, go through the screening test that is pretty straightforward and very robust in terms of sensitivity and specificity to see if indeed your symptoms can be related to celiac disease. This is a simple blood test, it's fast, it's cheap. And if you test positive, so in other words, that you have these autoantibodies that are you know, again, extremely sensitive and specific for serious disease. The next step is to perform an upper endoscopy with biopsy because you want to show that that test is related to the autoimmune insult that characterizes the disease. So, in other words, that the intestine layer is damaged and the villi are now short or gone completely. That is the cornerstone diagnosis for serious disease. That also helps to you know, exclude from other malabsorption situations in which you may not have a gluten-induced enteropathy, i.e. damage of the intestine, but you still have a suboptimal uh, digestion and or absorption of uh, nutrients, uh, including vitamins and minerals. Uh, in this case, you know, beside the screen test for celiac disease, looking for uh, autoantibodies, 
what it would be important indeed is to do make an you know an assessment nutritional panel to see where is the level of several vitamins and minerals in your body and if they are suboptimal um, that means that definitely you have a problem either in digesting and or absorbing your food stuff Dana, in your recent article, Commercial Hype Versus Reality, Our Scientific Understanding of Gluten and Athletic Performance, you mention that 41% of athletes report adhering to a gluten-free diet, which may be as much as fourfold higher than the population-based clinical requirements. Is this gluten-free diet just a uh, dietary trend that you see in the sporting world, something along the lines of the paleo diet or the Atkins diet a few years ago, or is there something more at play? I'm partly curious if there is something more at play. Now, when we found that about 41% of athletes were adhering to a gluten-free diet, not all of them were adhering 100% of the time. Some athletes only reported adhering to a gluten-free diet 50% of the time. So um, I would definitely say from a practical perspective and working in high-performance sport, there's definitely been a huge increase in athletes adopting a gluten-free diet. But part of the reason I started researching gluten and the effects of a gluten-free diet in an, in an athletic population is I am genuinely curious, as I mentioned, if there is something going on that we don't know about in terms of the repeated injury on the gut and known dietary triggers. Um, we didn't find anything in our research, and we did run a double-blind uh, double blind crossover intervention in cyclists. We didn't find that there was increased gut injury with gluten, but I mean, there's a lot more measures that can be done. That was, you know, that's one study. It's a very preliminary study looking at the area. But I am genuinely curious if um, athletes are possibly more susceptible. At this point, we don't have any evidence suggesting that, but I do encourage, I do encourage more research in that area. Getting back to FODMAPs, I have heard that uh, in Australia and New Zealand, they've even started labeling foods as being low in FODMAPs, and I suspect that that might even start coming over here just as uh, gluten-free now is a very common labeling in restaurants or in grocery stores. Uh, Dana, can you give us an idea of what a reduced or low FODMAP diet would look like? I've read lists of foods that have FODMAPs in them, and if you really were very strict about it, you'd be very limited in what you could uh, eat potentially. And so what is a what is a good... A dietetic approach to a low FODMAP diet, and what would that look like? Yep. So, with the low FODMAP diet um, in in Australia, it's definitely way more popular there. That's where it was sort of uh, invented in a way. And there are whole shelves of uh, low FODMAP foods um, labeled low FODMAP that you would see in terms of uh, it that would be common in uh, North American grocery stores with the gluten free sections. And I've definitely been following market reports and they are indicating that low FODMAP may be the next gluten-free. So that makes me excited partly because individuals who do genuinely respond to FODMAPs negatively will have more food options and it will be easier to determine what's high and low FODMAP. But it does get me worried a little bit in terms of people going on restrictive diets unnecessarily or self-diagnosing GI issues and possibly overlooking uh, real conditions. Um, so in terms of a low FODMAP diet and what that looks like, it can be fairly restrictive, but once you go through the initial um, initial phase of a low FODMAP diet, you can definitely reintroduce foods to make it less restrictive. So for example, um, if I was sensitive to polyols, I would need to avoid certain foods with sugar alcohols in them or blackberries, for example. 
which contain, uh, which are high in polyols. But there is a certain amount, like I could possibly eat three blackberries, but not 10. So there is also some guidelines around the amount of foods with FODMAPs. If you eat a lower amount, it can still be low enough to not trigger symptoms. But a higher amount is then considered high FODMAP. There's not really a rhyme or reason to which foods have FODMAPs. So, but I um, often refer to an app, and Monash University has created an excellent app that's super easy for people who need to be on a low FODMAP diet to search foods. And it's a traffic light system that you can basically just search for food and search, for example, nectarines or peaches, which are stone fruit and high in FODMAPs. Um, and it will basically come up with a red high FODMAP. Or it can give you something like a yellow for an avocado. So an eighth of an avocado, for example, would be considered low FODMAP. But if you ate a quarter of an avocado, it would be considered high FODMAP. So the easiest way to go about it is look at the groups of foods in terms of fructans, lactose, polyols, galactans, etc. Figure out which foods you typically eat that are high FODMAP. So you don't need to necessarily restrict everything if you don't eat a lot of garlic for some reason, well, then I wouldn't worry about it if it's high FODMAP because you don't typically eat it. So I would figure out which foods, if you're having issues, which foods you typically eat that are high FODMAP, then work through those, then work through the reintroduction phase to minimize the restriction. It sounds like uh, using a dietitian that's skilled in FODMAP diet or is uh, FODMAP literate, I guess you could say, would be very beneficial versus uh, just kind of a, I guess, elimination diet approach something along those lines where people just kind of guess at what they could be by reading up on the internet? I think it can be quite challenging to navigate. Um, and Monash University does actually run a FODMAP training program for dietitians. So I would definitely work with a practitioner who, who is experienced in, in low FODMAP diets. Uh, Dana, you refer to this in your answer, but I'll put this out to both of you in, mm-hmm. answer in whichever order you want. Um, but restricted and disordered eating, unfortunately, is widespread uh, in the sporting world, especially in, uh, for example, endurance sports or the more uh, what you could describe as aesthetic sports where an athlete may be judged based on their appearance. Uh, what are the risks or what kind of things should practitioners look out for when uh, suggesting either a gluten-free or low FODMAP diet, uh, specifically in regards to athletes that may already be at risk for developing disordered eating patterns? That's definitely something that I um, kind of flag right away if I have an athlete come to me and they're on a fairly restrictive diet. It's, um, it's definitely something I, I keep an eye out for right away. Um, you know, sometimes athletes are just, look, you know, they're looking to, to genuinely just eat as healthy and as clean as possible. But when they end up restricting a little bit too much, um, you know, it, it can it can quickly go down the wrong path and they can end up with more orthorexic behaviors. And uh, Dr. Fasano, do you have anything to add in that regard? Well, you know, again, I will make a distinction between professional athletes and amateurs. Professional athletes uh, are very much scrutinized by, you know, their dietitians and, you know, trainers. So uh, a inappropriate behavior that definitely, particularly for endurance athletes, it's, it's as you are mentioning, Chris, it's 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 a tangible risk because the, the appearance and then you know what is the stereotype you know um, body appearance of um, you know endurance athletes require a certain kind of very lean you know structure with um, um, you know 
BMI that is very, you know, uh, tidally controlled and so on and so forth is an issue. But I don't see, you know, how these athletes, they are professional, can sp- spill into eating disorders without being flagged right away by, you know, their trainers and their dietitians. Also because their performance will be tremendously affected in a negative way if they go too far. So that will be pretty much, you know, um, you know, against their own interests in terms of performance. Uh, it's much more tangible in, uh, um, you know, semi-professional amateur athletes, of course. And again, um, as Dana was mentioned before, you know, both diets, but particularly the FODMAP diet, given the promiscuity of FODMAPs in many foodstuffs, can be quite restrictive and, uh, you know, again, not, you know, easy to maintain and, and hardly justifiable if, indeed, there are no clear evidence of problems with FODMAP or with gluten causing, uh, you know, issues in terms of GI symptoms or extra-intestinal symptoms or just performance in general. Uh, Dr. Fasano, another question uh, related but uh, on a little different angle. Uh, I've certainly heard about some cases where uh, wheat-related allergies have even lowered the threshold for exercise-induced anaphylaxis, or there may be some relationship between some sort of uh, gluten type of allergy and uh, exercise-induced bronchospasm or asthma. Is that something that you've encountered in your practice? Oh, very much so. It's the most frightening, um, you know, um, reaction, allergic reaction to gluten, that is the uh, exercise-induced anaphylaxis. This is uh, something that we have seen. Uh, it's not very frequent, don't get me wrong, but definitely, you know, we see in our practice. Uh, and again, uh, it's it's a frightening situation because these are, um, you know, individuals that soon after that they, you know, ingest gluten-containing foods, um, they may eventually, um, you know, develop a reaction after exercising that can be quite life-threatening. So definitely it's a possibility to be taken into consideration, yes. I remember not long ago in the news, I used to live in Chicago, and before the Chicago Marathon used to happen, the the evening news beforehand always had, you know, all, you know, participants are getting ready for the Chicago Marathon tomorrow, and they show a big banquet room, and everybody was eating these uh, gigantic plates of pasta, you know, eating big plates of spaghetti and stuff, car- carbo-loading, and uh, with these big pasta meals. And now you don't really hear about that as much, or at least it doesn't get the same kind of uh, media coverage that it used to, and it seems like maybe pasta or car- carbohydrates are somewhat uh, maligned or something like that in the sports world. What what happened? Uh, what Why this big turnaround in just maybe even 10 years that people are looking away from carbohydrate loading, or is carbohydrate loading still an important uh, approach to pre-race training? And I'll let uh, Dana lead off with this one. I would say definitely adequate carbohydrate in the right time is still very important, especially for endurance, for endurance athletes. But I think athletes are realizing that they don't necessarily only need to eat a large plate of pasta to get adequate carbohydrate. There's a lot of other foods where they can load up carbs for, for an event, like, the, like a marathon. Um, fruits have lots, yams, rice, quinoa. So I think athletes are just becoming more educated about other ways to get carbohydrates from possibly more nutrient-dense sources. Dr. Fasano, if an athlete chooses to go gluten-free either by choice or by necessity, uh, what are the key considerations for maintaining a healthy uh, diet and ensuring that they're consuming enough uh, carbohydrates to support the level of activity that they have? So, um, you know, um, let's start from the premises that 
technically speaking, gluten is nutritionally useless. You know, we evolved as a species uh, being gluten-free. Gluten was introduced only 10,000 years ago in the two million years journey on the face of the earth that human beings have been enjoying uh, with agriculture. Uh, said that, though, when you go gluten-free, um, you know, even if you eliminate gluten, but with that you eliminate other stuff that's extremely important to you, particularly vitamins, minerals, and fibers. So if you need to go gluten-free either by choice or necessity, once again, I, I find extremely important and I would say pivotal, particularly for professional athletes, to do that under the strict you know, supervision of a knowledgeable dietitian. You know, to follow up also what you guys were discussing before, the most immediate way to load it up with carbohydrates for athletes was indeed a big bowl of pasta. But now, you know, the nutrition industry got much more sophisticated. So not only you have natural, you know, sources of carbohydrate loads before activity, but now there are also products that are, you know, commercialized that can achieve their goal. Um, probably the gluten-free, uh, the, the gluten load became less popular with the increased awareness of what gluten can do to you, right or wrong, um, you know, in terms of, you know, how, you know, strong is the evidence that indeed can create problems in terms of endurance. But, you know, that's probably the reason why there's been this shift. Are there any things that we kind of had failed to mention that you feel are important or what have we missed about this conversation? Uh, again, uh, we discussed this, you know, length, but, you know, if you have to go on a gluten-free diet for whatever reason, you better do this under supervision of a good dietitian. This is not something that you just go out there and, and embrace by yourself. Great. Dana, anything that you feel like we have missed or not gotten to? Um, I would just probably um, mention that I, I, do, I do think there is somewhat of a bandwagon effect, and I'm, yes. I'm curious and interested to watch if this bandwagon effect is going to shift over to FODMAPs. Because um, so it's still only, and I, you know, athletes may may, and we, you know, we have some research coming out that you know um, might help athletes determine if strategic low FODMAP diet might help with GI issues if they're if they're prone to exercise induced GI issues. But yeah, I'm curious to see if if athletes are are going to jump on low FODMAPs a little too quickly. It would be interesting to see athletes are always looking for that extra edge, and they are, if anything, mm -hmm. willing to experiment on their bodies. So I think being a high-level athlete is, in some sense, one large experiment to see what you can push your body to, and if it, uh, you know, takes changing your diet radically. Um, you know, a lot of athletes would be very willing to do that to see if they get any sort of perceived benefit. At the same time, there could be, you know, uh, these things are very difficult to measure. There could be some sort of placebo effect. You hear a lot of uh, athletes that go on a gluten-free diet say, wow, you know, I felt so good after changing my diet after the first week or two, and there's not really a good, um, I don't know, biologic or mechanistic model for why they started feeling so much better so quickly, other than maybe they felt like they were controlling their diet or doing something. And, uh, you know, if the placebo effect is there, you know, maybe it's worth taking advantage of to some degree. If an athlete feels better, maybe, and it's a low risk, you know, I, I don't know if there's a big downside to doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I have an athlete that, you know, placebo or not, um, genuinely is doing better, eating better on a gluten-free diet, then I'll do my best to support that for sure. And I do think that um, there are other food and nutrition shifts that happen when an athlete shifts to a gluten-free diet. You know, we found that, you know, athletes were more conscientious of their food choices. We're eating more fruits and vegetables or gluten-free whole grains. So I do, um, I do think there's other changes in nutrition that simultaneously happen when athletes switch to a gluten-free diet, which, you know, are showing to be, to be beneficial.
So it might not be the gluten, but if there's more positive overall dietary things happening, then, you know, I'll definitely help an athlete to guide in the right direction. I think sometimes it's just having a system or some rules to follow, and uh, that's more beneficial than anything else. In either case, uh, I want to say thank you to both of you, Dana Liss and uh, Alessio Fasano. Thank you very much for being with us this afternoon. Uh, we've had a great discussion about the intersection between gluten, FODMAPs, and the athletic world. I've gotten very hungry. I think I'm going to go out and eat a nice big pizza now full of gluten and lactose and other high FODMAP foods uh, just to get over my own neurosis around this. <laughs> And uh, thank you again. I really appreciate your participating in this. Thank, oh, thank you, you for, for your time us. and interest in this area. Great. Have a good afternoon. Thank you again.